Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All right, we're back. So I want to cue this up real quick. The book is uh, Big Sexy. Bartolo Colon, in his own words, Michael Stahl is the author. I had the privilege of speaking to him back in May of 2020. Uh, no baseball, pandemic raging. We didn't know when baseball would be back. So one of the things I did is you know, had some alumni reports and was looking for some cool Mets content. And this book, you know, which I had no idea there was actually going to be a book about Bartolo Colon out. And I stumbled across it, reached out to Michael. And we had a great conversation. So you'll hear that conversation from May of 2020 between Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy, and me. He's just keeping the ball away from board the whole game. He wants to get it. There ball. Oh. Behind the back slip, and he got him. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's so easy for Cologne right now that he's able to put some mustard on it. First hit of the year. Oh. He drives one. Deep left field. That goes Upton. Back near the wall. It's out of here. <laughs> Bartolo has done it. The impossible has happened! The team vacates the dugout as Bartolo takes the long trot. His first career home run. And there will be nobody in the dugout to greet him. (laughs) This is one of the great moments in the history of baseball. Bartolo Colon has gone deep. I want to say that was one of the longest home run trots I've ever seen, but I think that's how fast he runs. <laughs> I'm joined by Michael Stahl. Uh, you guys uh, may have seen the book. It just came out about a week or so ago. Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. Former Met, former Indian, uh, beloved Met, actually, even though he has a short period of time, Bartolo Colon. You can check out Michael at his website, michaelstollwrites.com, and at Michael R. Stoll. And Michael, welcome to the program. Now, Memorial Day just a week away, and there won't be any baseball, and we don't know if there'll be any baseball. But uh, I think if you're a Mets fan or or baseball fan, this book that uh, you came out with, well, at least scratch the itch a little bit. Real interesting stuff on a character. I have to admit, I did not expect a book to come out on. So pretty interesting how you're able to get this one put through. Uh, yeah, you know, Bartolo's, you know, I, he's a beloved person, uh, especially in the Mets community, but really honestly throughout Major League Baseball. 
uh, I got to be in contact with some representatives from several major league franchises. And I promise you, this is not an exaggeration. Every time I would reach out to somebody in one of these franchises, they would say, oh, Bartolo, he's one of my favorite people that you know we've ever worked with, we've ever had here uh, on the team. Um, beloved throughout the game, um, but a character. But I think also this book will really kind of show you um, that he's a very layered person. Um, I think kind of, you know, people saw this just sort of, you know, kind of shy, humble, you know, and yet sort of fun-loving guy. But there's many layers uh, to the to the Bartolo Colon, uh, the man. And his backstory is just one of incredible inspiration. Um, and people will really get to know him, you know, very intimately. And I think get to relive you know, some fantastic uh, baseball moments uh, from the past, you know, 25 years, basically. How did you come about? Because I wouldn't have thought of him wanting to write a book. I mean, he's kind of still playing, so he's not really retired, but I think his career is coming to an end. Uh, Obviously, the public perception, and he talks about it in the book. He speaks Spanish usually publicly because he's a lot more comfortable with that. So maybe you don't get the total feel of who he is. But how did you come about wanting to write the book, get in touch with him? Because this is just just came out of the blue when I saw I'm like, wow, Bartolo Colon with a book? That's interesting. It came out of the blue for me, too. Um, so what happened was uh, Abrams Books, which uh, published the book, uh, a an editor there, and the word editor now is kind of multifaceted. Uh, he's more of like a project manager, I guess you, you could say. Um, but uh, the, the editor there named uh, Garrett McGrath is a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, he actually was the one that came up with the idea in about August or September of 2018. Um, so I think he just, you know, he's a he follows baseball. He's a big baseball fan. Uh, when we first met, that was actually kind of something we bonded over, our, our, our respective love for baseball, even though he's a Yankees fan uh, and I'm a Mets <laughs> fan. But um, but he uh, he's, he's a great guy, and, and he came up with the idea for the book, and uh, I think, you know, just knowing Bartolo, again, as this kind of character, this interesting guy, he had a feeling that at that point that Bartolo's career was, was coming to an end. I think pretty much everybody did. Uh, and he approached Bartolo with the idea for the book. And again, that was in about September 2018. Um, everyone had kind of signed off on it. And then Bartolo... I think that might have sort of <laughs> made it a little real for him, you know, retirement. So ironically, I think even while we were going through the process of writing this book, he was sort of wavering a little bit on whether or not to retire. I think he was, I, I really don't know this for sure, but I think at some points he was kind of, you know, settled and, and committed on retiring, but then just kind of wavered and, you know, it was, it was too difficult for him to give it up. And then, yeah, you know, even this year we had the book on the way and he signed with that team in, in the Mexican League, uh, but COVID-19 uh, canceled that season uh, indefinitely. So, you know, unfortunately, I think this might, uh, you know, be a, I don't know if it's a, pre, I don't know if it's a premature to end to his career. I mean, it might be in his mind, but uh, COVID might have actually sort of ended his career prematurely. I think he wanted to give it one last go, he was trying to even in, in the 2019 season, and a couple of teams had contact with him. I believe the Tigers did, 
I think I heard at some point the Mets had contacted him as well or looked into it, but they, I think they signed Irvin Santana instead. Um, so he's been trying to come back, um, but obviously, uh, you know, his his age is – he's getting up there in age, and uh, and also, again, the COVID-19 crisis didn't, didn't really help things for him. Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words, a really good and what they call now the pandemic books that you want to read, getting your baseball itch. Thank and you, you mentioned that, that everybody um, – you know, had something, you know, when you brought up Bartolo, oh, wow, let me have a great story. And that's what's fun about this book. So if you buy it, you have a Manny, Manny Ramirez tells a story, Omar Vizquel, uh, mm-hmm. Albert Pujols. These are not easy. Like, Ramirez, that's not an easy guy. If I called Manny Ramirez and said, hey, come on a podcast, he's probably going to say no. Um, but it seems like, like you said, and I'm wondering, you know, I always ask an author, what, what was your biggest learning or surprise when you took on this project? Was it the fact, like you said earlier, how many people wanted to engage you in conversation about Bartolo? Um, and not just, I'm sure, Latino players. I mean, uh, he seemed to transcend in those locker rooms through different cliques and whatnot. Was that your biggest learning? Or were there other things going in which you, as you said, as a Mets fan, thought you knew about Bartolo and then came out and said, wow, never expected that? I think this might sound, this might sound almost like insulting, and I don't mean it that, in this way at all uh, towards him. Not at all. I, I, I don't really have a, a bad thing to say about him. But I think the thing that I wouldn't say maybe surprised, that might not be the best way of putting it, but it just, it just was sort of, it, it just really piqued my interest about him, was just how uh, smart and observant and conscientious he is. So, you know, I think Mets fans again, and then really just baseball fans, because he's always done these interviews in Spanish and things like that. You know, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect as much as Met, as, as fans feel like we know Bartolo, like there is still like this like sort of little disconnect, you know, with him and getting to know him a little bit and, you know, really trying to sort of understand what he's trying to get across. I came to realize that he's very smart in his own way and very observant and conscientious of the way people think about him. So for example, uh, in the book, you know, of course he tells the story about the home run, right? And he was telling me that as he rounded first base, as he approached first base, the Padres first baseman, Will Myers had his arms crossed and gave him a look like, I can't believe you just hit a home run. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember when, when we were talking about that, Bartolo said to his interpreter, he said, now I want to stress this, that he didn't say that to me. I don't know what he was thinking, but it looked to me like he was surprised, that, that he looked at me like I, I couldn't believe you just hit a home run. So, you know, there, that right there was just like sort of an example of how sensitive he is, you know, and how he didn't want to, you know, show anybody else up. You know, again, with that home run, he tells the story in the book about um, seeing James Shields for the first time after the home run about uh, a year and a half later when he was in camp with the Rangers. Um, And James Shields says to him, hey, remember when you hit that home run off me? And even in that personal one-on-one exchange, Bartolo didn't want to, like, show the guy up. And he goes, no, I don't don't know what you're talking about. And then James Shields (laughs) laughed at him, you know, so – I think that was one thing, again, surprised is not the right word. It just was sort of like, oh, this is something I really didn't get to know about him. And, uh, and, and again, he's just, he's just, he's a sharp guy. He's maybe smart. Isn't the right word in this context. He's a sharp guy. You know, he's not this like sort of like happy go lucky flippant 
you know, uh, person uh, who is unaffected by things. He's very sensitive and very affected by his surroundings and conscientious of other people's feelings. And I think that's something that people who read the book will, will, will learn as well. You know, you brought up the hitting, and, and it, I sometimes I because recently that's been what a lot of people talk about, the home run, and there's so much more, and you'll see in this book, there's so much more to Cologne. I mean, there's, and we'll get to it in a minute, two, really, two types of careers, two different types of pitchers if you look at it, but what I found interesting yeah. is that when he came to the National League for the first time, well, he was with Montreal uh, briefly, but when he came back with the Mets, uh, he mm-hmm. turned hitting into this, like, routine, I mean, with the bigger hat, the hat flying off. Um, yeah. He wanted to have fun with it. And, and I was surprised because you just said he's sensitive and he's a professional. And no matter mm-hmm. who you are, pitcher, you know, 25th man on the roster, nobody wants to be made of a joke of on a professional baseball field. But he turned a weakness into fun. And from what I understand and I've right. heard, and I can't remember who told me this, he's not all that awful in batting practice. So it wasn't surprising. And I don't remember who said this. It might have been a current Met format who said that they weren't totally surprised because he's not that bad of a hitter but he turned it kind of into his own little sideshow, maybe to have fun and deflect. But I found that interesting about how he talked about his hitting in that way, in a way that you would not have expected a professional hitter to talk about themselves. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that, um, well, you know, one thing that I thought about as you were, as you were speaking was in, in Gary Cohen's famous home run call, right? He says, you knew if he ever got, you know, hit one the right way, made contact the right way, he was strong enough to do it. And I think that's exactly right. And I think, you know, Bartolo growing up, of course, you know, he hit all the time. And, and he said that he was, you know, a very good hitter. And I think that that's probably true for probably any major league pitcher. You know, they grow up. They're not pitching all the time. You're not even really supposed to start really throwing until you're 13. So, you know, if you're playing baseball starting at age four or five years old, that's still a lot of hitting. And then even when you're pitching until, you know, your high school and college years, you're still going and hitting. So, you know, these guys still, you know, like to hit, but boy, what a, what a, you know, what a statement that makes about the quality of major league pitchers, right? That even, even though these pitchers, you know, it takes so much practice um, to, to be able to step into a box against major league pitchers. Um, but Bartolo took it very seriously. Um, as soon as he signed with the Mets, he was already talking with, uh, you know, one of his representatives, uh, Cesar. Uh, he was saying, you know, my goal is to, to hit a home run. You know, uh, and and they had actually sort of, uh, I'm not sure if this made it into the book, but they had actually sort of made a bet uh, that in 2016 that he would hit a home run. He didn't, or not in 20, or his first year with the Mets, sorry. They had made a bet before 2014 that he would hit a home run. Now, actually, Bartolo lost that bet, but then in 2016, he he hits the famous home run. So he took it very seriously, and he says in the book that by 2016, he was feeling a lot more comfortable in the box. Um, and that, you know, speaks to his dedication and how seriously he took his craft. But like I said a few minutes ago, he, here's this, like, very layered guy, a uh, very interesting, unique person who has a dynamic personality. Even though he was taking, you know, hitting very seriously and, and, and wanting to do, you know, well for his team when he could, um, you know, he also took the time, had the frame of mind to, you know, put on a bigger batting helmet so that, the batting helmet would fl- would fly off and the fans would laugh. So, you know, it, it, that says everything to you about him right there, just how kind of, you know, he's a walking anomaly. I mean, you and and everything about him is uh, it comes back to that, right? Like you think about his body and yet 
he shows off his athleticism that that day down in Miami when he when he flips the ball back behind his uh, behind his back, right? So you wouldn't expect that from you know those cat-like reflexes <laughs> from a guy of his body type, um, but that's that's him as a whole person. He's just like this dynamic walking anomaly. I was a little surprised, and and throughout the book you'll ask him his favorite, you know, guy he's hardest to hit, favorite stadium on the road, favorite stadium, yeah. home stadium. And I was surprised at how fond he was of his Mets years. Now, they were three years. He went to the World Series, was yeah. a big part of those teams, pitched very well. Some of his seasons of the Mets, if you start looking at some advanced analytics, are right up there, better than his Cy Young season that he had with Anaheim. But he holds mm-hmm. his Mets years very fond. And again, it's more than yes. that home run. Just talk about the home run is disrespectful, in my opinion. It's a fun moment. But uh, talk about that, because I, I was a little surprised at how fond he was of his Mets years. I didn't expect that for a guy that you know, played with them at the end of his career, didn't come up with them, and was not the star of that staff by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I was a little surprised about that, too. And um, I just had one other quick thought, if you don't mind me sharing. Um, when I spoke to him about his time in Montreal, you know, for me, as a huge baseball fan, I've been a huge baseball fan my whole life. You know, I remember when he went to Montreal, I was like, man, this is like a huge deal. Like, he might literally save the franchise. And when I spoke to him about that, he he was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I, I was in a groove, and I and I just kind of was able to keep my groove going. I wasn't thinking about, you know, if the team could stay in the, in the city. And I was just kind of like, wow. Like, I, I just would have thought that he would have felt you know, maybe a little more pressure on him, but he didn't. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, the Mets time, and then the sort of the opposite was true with the Mets uh, in that, you know, he spent uh, three years there, but, you know, it seems like they were, you know, about maybe the three, you know, most favorite years of his career. It's, it comes off that way. He doesn't quite say it, put it that way, but um, he really enjoyed himself. And, um you know, I am a I am a Mets fan, and uh, I don't I don't, but I really don't think that that is what bled into the text at all when it, when I put it together. Um, any kind of favoritism, I think that he just he bought a house in New Jersey. Um, he he still lives there part time, and as he says in the book, the Mets it really was the team that felt most like home for him, and uh, you know he stayed with them for a third year. Um, because and he took less money because he just felt so comfortable uh, with that franchise um, and uh, what so many great moments for him. I mean, not not just the home run, right? But he also pitched in his one World Series uh, with the Mets. He pitched in the All Star Game, uh, and uh, you know he had the Jose Fernandez game with the Mets. Plus, like I said, the the behind the back throw, which was a different game, but also in Miami. So. Just as it turns out, just just a, a ton of great moments for him, and the Mets fans embraced him, I think, more so than any other fan base uh, of all the teams that he was with. One more thing I'll point out, too, is I think, you know, something else that might have been a factor here is, and Omar Vizquel kind of talks about it in his excerpt, uh, about how, you know, later in his career with the Mets and, and the Rangers and you know, he sort of seemed to open up a little bit and enjoy himself more. When he was with Cleveland, he was so young and so shy. And I wonder if maybe just as Bartolo aged a little bit, he kind of, you know, felt a little more comfortable, felt like he could come out of his shell a little bit. 
So then that creates this energy where the Mets fans can embrace him and Bartolo embraces them even more, and it creates this real like cycle of positive energy, if, if that makes sense. I think people forget he was very big for them in that World Series run. He didn't start any games, but that was a thin bullpen. It was a bullpen that was very mm-hmm. dicey outside of Familia. And he was able to, when starters got kicked out of the game early, uh, fifth, sixth inning, knocked out, you know, that bridge. You know, I know John Neese was the lefty, but instead of them having to go out and get an arm, he was able to really pitch well. And uh, for the most part, uh, outside of the Chase Utley game, and we know what happened there when he came in, he almost got them out of that inning. He really didn't give up anything. And guy was starting all year, been a starter his whole career. Now you're being asked to go to the bullpen, warm up, come in, up, down, yep. whatever. And he did it, and he did it without complaining, and that's big. And then he comes back for less money the next year. Uh, just shows you a lot about who he was, you know, looking back, what a, a unique team that was. And he was a big part of that bridge to Familia, uh, which they badly needed during that postseason. Uh, Terry Collins says in the book, uh, I got to speak to Terry Collins over the phone, and, and he contributed a story. And he says the definition of a professional, he's like Bartolo's right there, you know. Um, and yeah, he does discuss in the book, Bartolo, that is about how uncomfortable he was coming out of the bullpen, but he knew that that was what the team needed. So he was going to do it. And, um, you know, he had a couple of tough luck performances. He gave up a few runs, but, you know, I think in the world series, I want to say, I think he came in with runners on. I mean, this is something that this guy is just like literally almost never done in his entire, forget just professional career, probably in his entire like life. You know what I mean? Like when he was starting to pitch in the Dominican Republic at age, you know, 14, you know, I don't think that the way they organize games there, he was, you know, coming in out of a bullpen and, you know, with runners on and like a eighth inning situation or whatever it was, uh, or extra innings, I think was what happened in the World Series. Um, and then, yeah, like you mentioned that the Chase Utley play, I mean, he should have gotten out of that inning. Um, so he had a little bit of tough luck in the, in the playoffs, but overall he pitched, he pitched pretty well for them and in a spot where, he was not comfortable. And I think that says a lot about him as a character and as a teammate. And uh, again, I go back to, you know, what Terry Collins said about him. Uh, he tells that great story about one of his early starts in Anaheim where Bartolo just didn't have it. And he gave up like back to back to back home runs, I think in like the first inning. And you know what he did? He took his, he took his licks and he, he stayed in the game until the fifth inning because the bullpen was, was tired. So, you know, his ERA ballooned up to like six or something like that. But, you know, he didn't care. He he knew it was best for the team and, and, he, and he wanted to stay in the game. He told Terry after the first inning, he goes, I'm going to get you into the seventh. And he wound up going five, but still, like that's his, that was his attitude. And that was, you know, a real um, testament to him. And what's interesting also when you go to his Mets years is that here's a guy in the league two decades plus, and Dan Worthen is one of his favorite pitching coaches. They had a unique relationship, one that – for both mm-hmm. of them, I was surprised, you know, with their pregame or uh, pregame routine. Uh, that says a lot. I mean, Worthen uh, was kind of a bit of a controversial figure. You know, some, myself included, thought he didn't do a great job with younger pitchers, but certainly veterans who knew what they were doing needed someone just to kind of correct. Uh, he seemed to be a good guy for them. And it seems like Bartolo fell into that. And that's a high praise for a pitching coach for a guy like this, 20 plus years in the big leagues. Picks him out of all the pitching coaches that you could have, you know, minor leagues, big leagues, you know, winter ball, whatever. That's the guy he picked. Very interesting. Yeah, you know, when when I was doing those, like, 
so what I did was that all those asides was actually, if I may take credit, they, they were my idea to just kind of ask him like, Hey, what's your favorite uniform? What's your favorite stadium? Uh, you know, I just kind of did this like, you know, uh, you know, sort of like quick, uh, you know, almost like word association type thing. And when I asked him who's his favorite manager and when I asked him who his favorite pitching coach is, uh, he was a little uncomfortable giving the answers that he gave. He said Bob Guerin for his uh, for manager, and he said Dan Worthen for pitching coach. And he and again his sensitivity here's his sensitivity on display. He said, you know, listen, all my managers were different. They all taught me something something unique. And he basically said the same thing for um, for the pitching coach. But but I, I put him on the spot. <laughs> I forced him to give uh, single answers. And, and for pitching coach, he said Dan Worthen. Um, but I think I wonder if with Dan Worthen it had as much to do just with their personalities meshing than anything else, you know. Um, uh, you know, so the routine that you hinted at was before every start uh, when he was with the Mets, he would play hide-and-go-seek with Dan Worthen. Um, and that became – you know, part of his routine. Uh, and he would come out of the uh, locker room. And I guess just, you know, you do this thing 162 times a year, right? There's a rhythm to it, you know, when you get to the stadium, when you put your, you know, jersey on, whatever. So I guess Warden must have just sort of known about when Bartolo would be ready for him and, and he would just go hide. And Bartolo just kind of sort of knew intuitively, like when to go look for him. Um, and, you know, more than tells stories about, you know, jumping out of a closet to scare him and like making him laugh and all this kind of stuff. And they did that so many times. And then when Dan Warden was his pitching coach in Texas, they started doing it again in Texas. But it was just such a great, uh, such a great story. And by the way, more than, uh, when I spoke to him, when I spoke to Warden a couple of times on the phone, really, really nice guy, by the way, just, just wanted to make sure I said that. Yeah, I've met Dan Worth in spring training. Definitely nice guy. Michael Stoll at Michael R. Stoll on Twitter. MichaelStollWrites.com uh, is the website. Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words. And look, Mets fan, City Field is his favorite field. I don't know if – did you have to put him on the spot with that one or he was comfortable saying that? You can't offend a stadium at this point, right? You know, was he able to comfortably <laughs> say he likes City Field? Yeah, that one he was he he kind of, he said pretty much uh, with, without like uh, without a doubt he said it directly. Uh, when I look at Cologne's career, I see two mm-hmm. careers, and then I see the, the the beginning, the end, the middle where there's a lot of uh, adversity health health wise in the yep. middle. Uh, hard thrower, maybe lacked the command and control at the beginning of his career, but a real stud, uh, definitely a Hall of Fame track back end of his career. I think you, you mentioned the Terry Collins story, real professional, not bad numbers, definitely could pitch at a big game and keep you in the game and maybe, maybe even dominate, but because he's going to have one stinker out of every five, his numbers are not going to look all that great. For every yeah. one of those uh, dominant performances, there'll be maybe, or two dominant performances, he goes out to Anaheim and he gives up a ton of runs and the numbers get skewed. So I look at it at two different careers and I don't know if you took that away. You know, you have the dominant or the young Bartolo Colon, but he knew how to pitch better late in his career. And I think the bridge yeah. is those three or four or five years when he was having the shoulder trouble, the elbow trouble, very serious trouble with his shoulder, has this cell therapy, which was controversial more so then, and I think kind of went away from what it sounds like in the, in the book. But two different pitchers. And I don't know if you took that away. Way different pitchers in a lot of senses. Uh, almost two different careers. 
Yeah, and by the way, too, you know, at that whole time when his elbow and shoulder uh, was giving him trouble, he also went through an incredible personal tragedy, uh, which, you know, I'm not going to get get into um, just because I kind of want to, you know, you know, get people to, to read the book, you know, but, um, but uh, that is something that period in his life, just before he goes to the Yankees, when he's out of baseball. Uh, yeah. It was not only because of physical issues. He was going through some big family turmoil, uh, big family tragedy occurred. And um, that was also a big reason why he was out of baseball for, for a year. And people like don't think know that. Um, and I've seen some some articles online where they kind of discuss, you know, that, that year where he was away from baseball and they're kind of like, ah, you know, he uh, he had to go and do this controversial surgery and that, that was the only reason he was able to come back. He was doing the steroids or whatever. Um, I think his personal tragedy had a much bigger impact on his decision to stay away from the game than, than anything. So that's something that people were not aware of and, and they'll learn about. But um, his career is an incredible one. I mean, uh, is there anyone else you know, that's ever been like that? Um, maybe a small handful. Um, but uh, it, it was interesting. I mean, I guess that's just not how we, how we evolve, right, as we age. You know, if only he had the sort of intellectual tools that he did as a 40-year-old. Uh, you know, if he could have had those at 25, you know, who knows what he could have been. I mean, he could have been, uh, you know, he could have been Pedro maybe. I don't know. Um, but uh, I definitely think what you just highlighted about those sort of two different careers is part of the reason behind um, Abrams wanting to do the book in the first place, because it's just a fascinating uh, career track. And before I let you go and wrap up, uh, the Hall of Fame, he mentions that he talks a little bit about it in the book. Yeah. Uh, most wins for a Dominican pitcher if he gets a chance. Uh, and, and it sounds like, you know, COVID might put an end to it, but maybe who knows? I mean, he's in his late 40s now, yeah, mid to late 40s. You know, he needs about 50 innings to get the most innings for a Dominican pitcher. His Hall of Fame case, when I first saw it brought up in the book, I'm like, nah, that's that's crazy, you know. But then I look at the comps on baseball reference, guys like Jack Morris mm -hmm. and Jim Bunning. Yeah. Uh, Hall of Famers, you know, CeCe Sabathia, who should be a Hall of Famer. And I, I look at the wins, 247. I know people don't really look at that all that much. The peripherals aren't bad overall, but they're they're not tremendous, the, the advanced numbers. It's a shame he lost those three or four years because I think the case would be much different if he has, uh, you know, averages maybe oh, sure. you know, 12 wins. I think we're having a much different conversation. With that said, it's not a terrible terrible case i think it's a veterans committee case down the line but it's not mm -hmm. a terrible case and uh I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts i mean you know you're kind of my generation and and i'm not a total you know advanced guy but i take a lot of this now as we've learned over the last decade plus into account you know you can make an argument guys like jim bunning don't belong in the hall of fame when you look back at how you know they voted then and what we look at now but you have precedent for guys similar to cologne similar careers similar numbers in the Hall of Fame. So it's not all that crazy, Bartolo Colon, a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I think his his Hall of Fame resume is an interesting one. I don't think he quite measures up, like you mentioned, Jack Morris. But, you know, if you had the um, if you had that extra year, at least, um, or, or, or two or three, really, 
Um, I think you're looking at him more like a Mike Messina, right, in terms of the number of wins uh, and things like that, and maybe even better than Mike Messina because Messina uh, never won a Cy Young uh, and Cologne did. So I think that he's close. Uh, I think that, you know, the way he, the way he talks about the numbers and the fact that the numbers don't tell the whole story is, is interesting. So for example, his first year in Anaheim, his ERA, if I recall correctly, was 5.01, right? But he won 18 games. And I think you would heard some of this with Jack Morris as well, that Morris's ERA is what, like 3.87, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, About league average. And, Right. And, you know, I think Morris said the same thing, and Bartolo will, I think, say something similar, is that, you know, when he was on Anaheim, Bartolo, that is, you know, he had a pretty good offensive team. So if he's, you know, by the second or third inning, if he's staked to a 5 nothing lead, he's just, you know, he's just launching balls right into the strike zone. He's not going to walk anybody, right? So maybe he finishes the game, he goes, you know, six innings, and he gives up three runs. You know, but he gets the win. His team wins, say, 6-3, right, 7-3. But, you know, if it was a one nothing game, maybe he would have, you know, maybe sacrificed a couple walks, struck some guys out. He was pitching to contact. And when he pitched to contact, there's a risk that, you know, guys are going to, you know, launch it out of the park. And that's what happened that one year. He gave up the most home runs of his career. And it was right after he signed that contract, and people were saying like, "Oh, the pressure's getting to him," and all this kind of stuff. It's like, no, he won. <laughs> he did what he took to take to help his team win, and he and he did win. He won 18 games that year. So even though his ERA was over five, he didn't view that as like a bad year, you know. Um, so his ERA, his career ERA, or ERA is something like 4.06 or 4.08, something like that. So. You know, that's a little high, and he he says in the book he knows that his steroid suspension hurts him as well. Um, but it's, it is interesting when you think of a guy like him, how how do you define a Hall of Famer, right? Do you define it by dominance? Do you define it by longevity? Uh, perhaps, you know, for him to even just have been in the major leagues as long as he was is a testament to that. And you could argue that that makes him a hall of famer in in that way. But also what did the guy do to get his team to win, to get his team into the playoffs and within the Mets case, you know, to the world series, he did a lot. He did a lot. And then, and that speaks to none, none of the intangible things in terms of, you know, sort of being a mentor to young Hispanic players, uh, particularly Hispanic players, like when he was with the Mets, uh, Terry Collins talks a lot about that, and, and Dan Worthen as well. So um, it, it just depends on what side of the fence, you know, you fall on in, in terms of how you view a Hall of Famer. But I definitely think he has, at, at worst, an interesting case. And I agree with what you said. I think a Veterans Committee um, debate uh, is, is probably in the cards for him at, at the very least. If you had, I know it's just a guess. Uh, he'd yeah. be 48 years old if, let's say, baseball doesn't come back this year, comes back normal-ish, you know, normal season next year. You know a little bit about him now. Would you put it past him, giving it a shot, coming into camp as a non-roster invitee? If he could get that kind of job, it's going to get very difficult at his age with the way the game is going. Would you put it past him, getting those 50 innings, getting a chance, even if it was a bad team, 
knowing what you know, given this is shot at 48 years old. Think about that, 48 years old. So what is, we'll leave on that. Yeah, I mean, he says in the book, here was another interesting remark, you know, he, that he said that, that stood out to me. Um, he said, you know, it makes sense that the younger prospects would get the chance first, right? You know, give them the chance, you know, from a team franchise perspective, give them the chance to see what they got um, before he would get an opportunity. Do I put it past them? Absolutely not. Um, that would not surprise me uh, at all uh, in terms of uh, his work ethic, his dedication, um, his love for the game. It wouldn't surprise me at all. It might surprise me from, like, sort of a franchise perspective, um, you know, for them to want to give him the opportunity over some, you know, kid out of college or, or, or something like that. But, um, but I know if, if that's what he wants to do, uh, he will do whatever it takes, uh, you know, to at least give himself a shot. So if he ends up as a non-roster invite or something like that, yeah, that would not surprise me at all. All right, so that was Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy. You heard that from May of 2020. Uh, before I, I wrap up here, I was just looking while I was playing that, and you guys were enjoying listening to it. Um, I was looking at Bartolo Colon's career. Not a Hall of Famer. I mean, I know the 247 wins and, you know, a veterans committee down the road might be more sympathetic to someone. Quite honestly, I have never figured out the Bartolo Colon Mets fan obsession. The home run was cool, I guess, because it's this fat guy who looks like he could play in a beer league softball tournament hits this home run. But, I mean, he was an athlete. He was a guy that, you know, when he was at Cleveland and got brought up, hard thrower. He was not some out of the nowhere prospect that, you know, made good late in his career. I mean, he was a he was the ace of the Indian staff in the late nineties. And he was part of a big trade. You know, Omar Manaya acquired him uh in Montreal and gave up a ton of talent, including Grady Sizemore. It turned out to have a, a pretty good career career. Cliff Lee was in that deal. He cleaned out his farm system to make a run at the division in two thousand two. Omar was trying to get a job. He wanted to get in the Mets job a couple of years later. But Omar got that job from the commissioner's office and basically went for it. Didn't care about the future. Didn't care about the Expos' future. Brought in Cologne because he was the best pitcher at that time. You know, it didn't work out. And uh, he goes on, you know, to sign with the Angels after that. And the year he won the Cy Young Award, and I think that was controversial. He had 21 wins, but he certainly wasn't the best pitcher that year in 2005. It uh, was not even his best year of his career. That probably would go into... You know, maybe the year that he got traded to Montreal or he had a great year in Oakland the year before the Mets signed him. And I do remember when Matt Harvey went down with a Tommy John surgery. I remember that winter uh, the Mets signed Cologne kind of his, his, as his replacement. I was like, ugh, well, that's, you know, there's a guy that, you know, was on the scrap heap, had some serious uh, arm, uh, you know, uh, shoulder issues, I believe, arm issues, went to some stem cell procedure that some thought was performance enhancing and was illegal. There was all controversy on that. But he was he was down for the count for about five years. So you figured he's done. After he wins the Cy Young Award, you figure he's done. About five years, Yankees pick him up off the scrap heap in 2011. He does fairly well in the back end of the rotation. And then he goes to Oakland and, and basically has the second act of his career from the ages of 38 to, I'm going to say he kind of fell off the cliff after 43 when the Mets let him go after 2016. He went to Atlanta, Minnesota, bounced around after, lost his stuff. But he had a second act late in his, late in his career. He was a command guy, 
pinpoint control. You know, the numbers didn't add up and look, you know, no pun intended, sexy because he'd have like three or four good outings, you know, six innings, two runs, six innings, three runs. Then he'd get bombed in one game. You heard Terry Collins talk about it today during the press conference, how he was the kind of guy that said, hey, if your bullpen is is short, I'll, I'll go out there, I'll give you seven innings. Maybe it won't look pretty because I don't have a lot today, but I'll make it where you're not embarrassed and I'll be able to at least justify going those seven innings. And that's what he does. And And then, you know, to me, Bartolo Colon and what he did in the postseason in 2015, where the Mets really didn't have enough bullpen. You know, Clippard wasn't living up to expectations. You had Familia. You know, Addison Reed was somebody they didn't know what they had yet. Jerry Blevins was out. So they needed that guy. Unfortunately, they didn't need him all that often because they had starters that went seven innings in Harvey and DeGrom and Syndergaard and whatnot. But those times where he needed to come in early against L.A., against Chicago, you know, Kansas City, you know, as well, you know, they were able to count on him. And think about it. He was a starter all year. You're asking a guy to transition to the bullpen, warm up, be brought in on a dime. And he did it, and he did it fairly well. And, and he was important. He was an important piece in the regular season before they were able to get the kids up, like Syndergaard and Mats, in the rotation. He was an important piece in the bullpen. Um, so he will go down as, as a really, uh, for me, a good Met because of what he did on the field. I think of him more because of that and what he did in the postseason than about the home run or the big sexy, you know, the other cartoon character stuff that I know fans are into because that's why they're fans and that's what makes sports fun. But that's not what I'm into. I'm into like, okay, tell me on the field what Bartolo Colon did. And it was, you know, he's a solid back end of the rotation pitcher, veteran arm that gave you innings was a good teammate and was adaptable and was able to help Mets win a pennant and nearly a championship because of his ability to come out of the bullpen at a time when your age of 43, 44, not that easy. Not that easy. So uh, I hope you enjoyed looking back at the interview with, uh, you know, Michael Stahl from about three or four years ago and uh, closing the book on another uh, Mets, you know, kind of an alumni segment appropriate because of the fact that the Mets honored Bartolo Colon. Some people think it's weird. I thought it was a little weird when I said he's coming to New York to announce his retirement, but clearly, you know, he's he, he didn't spend a lot of time with the Mets. But if you look at his career, other than Cleveland, he bounced around a little bit. His years with Anaheim were marred by his, his arm issues, serious arm issues, which should have ended his career. So um, I guess, you know, he appreciated the comeback and the fun times late in his career, the second act that the Mets and the Mets fans provided him. And uh, good for him and good for the Coens and, and how they go out and, and continue to change the fact that the Mets, you know, maybe, and I don't want to overdo it, but the Mets never looked at their history. They almost shunned it. This is something that would never happen on the prior ownership because they'd be afraid of getting made fun of. And look, it's a Sunday, even if it was during a contending season. It's a Sunday in September. It's a fun little thing. You know, they're not putting his number up on, you know, retiring his number. They're not throwing him into the Mets Hall of Fame. That'd be overdoing it. They're just saying, thank you. We appreciate you. We appreciate the years that you had in New York and the fun that we had watching you play and good luck in the next phase of your life. So... Nothing wrong with that. Good job by Steve and Alex Cohen and the Mets uh, front office and, and what have you for continuing to try to engage the fans in many ways to make this uh, a wholly entertaining product because that's what this is about. And going back to how I started this show, you know, David Stearns has his handful. 
And this is no gimme. I know everybody's thinking, you know, this is a gimme. This is the best thing. There's nothing wrong with this move. This is the right move to be made. This is the only move to be made. Sounds like the Mets didn't even interview anybody else. But there's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, if you look at Bloom and look at what the Red Sox, where they were, and, and how he was viewed coming from Tampa in a similar way five years ago, uh, David Stearns better look across, you know, a little bit north, a little bit north, look at what went wrong there, and learn from that because it's not just about the process and the inside baseball. It's about entertainment, and you don't want to get – and that's why I think it's so important, and we'll talk about this at a later date. This Pete Alonso situation is as much off the field as it is on the field, and I'm not going to talk about that today. That's that's a topic we're going to table maybe for next week, but uh, that that's a, a conversation that's getting amplified and will get very loud as we get into the offseason. It'll be interesting to see how that's viewed because – that's probably one of the first questions that Stearns is going to get at his press conference, uh, assuming Pete hasn't signed before then, So, which I doubt. Anyway, all right. want to thank everybody for joining me for another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G. Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, TalkingMetsNoG. And, of course, I want to thank the good folks from FanSide and Podcast Network for supporting the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with you next week. Till then, take care of it. credit card bill.